they weren't necessarily only going to church one hour on Sunday. There's there's more being done there. There's teaching and working together and and being built up in the truth that Paul was sharing with them, that Apollos was sharing with them and teaching them. So these are not baby Christians in the sense they just got saved. These are people that are at least four years into it with some of the best teaching and instruction that the church has known. (laughs) Okay? Uh, They weren't bad teachers. They were great teachers, and they were acting like infants. They still acted like they were unsaved. Okay, so being a baby Christian does not mean just necessarily that you're a new Christian. It means that you're still acting spiritually ignorant, infantile. So you can be a Christian for a day. And remember, this is for all of us. You can be a Christian for a day. You can be a Christian for 60, 70, 80 years and still be a baby Christian. It's possible. It's possible. Verse 2 says this, I fed you with milk. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, and he's, remember, he's been gone for a little over two years, even now, you're not ready. You're not yet ready. And remember, for the Corinthian church, for a people prone to think highly of themselves, this would have been hard to hear. What do you mean I'm not ready? I've been taught by Paul and Apollos. I'm not, you think I'm not ready for some good deep stuff? He says, no. You're not ready yet for the solid food. So question, what is the milk and what is the solid food? We've heard that a lot, right? In, in Christian circles in the church, we hear about milk and solid food. And you know, we want somebody to give us the steak and the meat and potatoes, right? To, to preach the deep stuff because that's the solid food. Or that church is so... It's just milk. It's just so thin and there's not much depth to it and all that kind of stuff. But what does it mean? Milk and solid food. Is it this? Is, is milk just the gospel? And then maybe solid food is like doctrine and, and how to live? What do you think? Say no. <laughs> no. Not exactly. Okay? Let's think of it this way. The gospel. Okay? We want to be a gospel-centered, God-centered, Christ-centered church. Yes? The gospel, think of it as milk, in the sense of bringing things back to the basics. And then think of the gospel as meat, as solid food. Applying the gospel to your walk. Same message, same doctrines, same truths, right? Same same points of reference. But in one context and in one communication, it's milk-like. And in one context and communication, it's, it's solid food. Okay? Um, for, for instance, for example, think about this, okay? This is our tract that we have ready for use out in the foyer. It's called, What is the Gospel? And this tract says, What is the good news about Jesus Christ? So for us in our culture today, we might need to say things like, There is a God. He really exists. Adam and Eve were real people. They sinned. They broke fellowship with God. Has information about God. He's holy. He's righteous. Perfect. Sovereign. He's a just judge. Mankind is next. We're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, We don't deserve reward. We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment. But, the next one, Jesus Christ. Who's that? Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's God the Son. Eternally existing, taking on flesh, living a perfect and sinless life, dying on the cross in our place. 
God pouring his wrath out on him for our sin so that we could be saved, our response. We're at that point, right? We have a choice to make. Are we going to accept and believe and repent? Or are we going to ignore and reject and continue to do it our own way and be headed towards destruction? That's this tract, by the way. If you want some help in witnessing to people, a little commercial break, snag some of those things and be ready, okay? Be ready and hand those out. This, Those things that I just said were pretty powerful, yes? And I said them in an almost nonchalant kind of a way. Those are the truths that our church is founded upon. <laughs> in this little paper document that unfolds, and sometimes you ever like try to fold the track back up, and you're like, man, how did it even go back together? But here it is. And that way, those truths, according to this passage, that was milk. That's milk. Do we make light of this? Okay, we never need to get to the point where we say, oh, milk isn't great for me. Oh, yes, it is. We never want to get to the place where we say, this is milk. All the other stuff is the meat. Give me the meat. No, it's not. Okay, this is this is milk in the way that I presented it, and it becomes meat real fast, real fast. Think about the book of Romans. Think about the book of Romans. Our ladies are doing a Bible study, started this Wednesday night. Jump in if you can on the book of Romans. And you know what? Romans 1 through 11 is milk. You think, oh man, Romans, it's such a deep book, and it is. And it's, it's, man, it's hard to sometimes get our mind around it. And it can be, but it's not God's fault. Sometimes the reason why it's hard for us to get our minds around it is because we have our own little humanistic way of thinking of things. And it's all down here on the earth, on our level. And if it doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't exist. <laughs> we forget who God is and who we are. And, and, but Romans 1 through 11 is Paul, um, taking the truth about God, the truth about man, creation, Man's response, God's grace, the plan of Jesus Christ, his death in our place, how to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and all glory to God. That's Romans 1 through 11. That was what was in here. This is much shorter. But that's Romans 1 through 11. That's milk. Hard to understand sometimes? Well, yeah, if we're, if we're doing it our way, it can be really hard to understand and, and, we're in the flesh, right? And, and we're growing, and so it's hard not to just totally get it the first time you read it. That's why we continue to study for our whole lives, because we're not there yet. And we're growing, and we're growing in our maturity. But Romans 1 through 11 is milk. Let's get after that milk. And then Romans 12 through 16 is the solid food. Okay, now give your life as a living sacrifice, wholly pleasing to God, which is your acceptable service. Okay, and how does that apply to my relationships? And how does that apply to my um, interaction with government and authority? And how does that apply to my convictions versus other people's convictions that may not be the same as mine? And how does that apply to? He takes the gospel truths, and then applies it and runs everything in life through the grid of those gospel truths. Now we're getting into the solid food. Does that make sense? That's milk and solid food. So another case in point. I've used this illustration uh, a couple times recently. Matthew eighteen. Matthew 18, a case in point. Uh, how can I be forgiving? Do I have to forgive everybody? Well, why, why do I have to forgive these things? And, and he, Jesus tells the story 
of the one servant who owed a great debt that he could never repay. The master forgives him. He turns around and sees some other guy who owes him hardly anything in infinitesimally small, I just find not even the right word to say, but you get the idea, compared to what the master had forgiven him, and he chokes his neck and throws him in prison. That's the gospel. <laughs> Which one are we in that story? We're the one who was forgiven more than we could ever hope to repay. And then we got to turn around and look at this person who owes us this little measly amount compared to what we've been forgiven for. That's where we find the strength to forgive. That was the gospel applied to relationship, applied to forgiveness. So Jesus took the milk of the gospel and turned it into solid food for our growth and sanctification in life. So I hope that makes sense. That is how milk and solid food works. That's how it works. And so Paul is saying, I can't even get to the solid food yet because you guys have not yet grasped onto the milk. You still need to go back to uh, the basics of the gospel. You still need milk. So think about this then. Putting these two major thoughts together. When is a Christian ready for solid food? When is a Christian ready for that depth? And the answer is as soon as they become a Christian. They've understood the truth of the gospel. God has graciously brought a dead man, a dead woman to life. Let's go. Let's get after it. Let's start learning. When are we ever done with the milk? Never. We're never done with the milk. Uh, it's so easy for us, isn't it? If we think about our lives and we think about our walk with Christ and our relationship with the church over the years, we can get so bogged down with the stuff of the details of every day. We kind of lose the underpinnings of all the gospel truths that are supposed to be what we run the grid through that grid, right? We run everything that we do in life through that grid of the gospel, of the gospel message and all it entails. And so if we lose the milk, and if we stop going back to the milk, then we stop being able to have the right glasses on to be able to view everything else in life rightly. So as Christians, we always need that milk. That's why Peter says in First Peter, and this is actually, if you're doing the, Paul referred to this earlier, if you're doing our blog tomorrow, Peter is going to say, as newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk. As if you were still a newborn babe, that badly, long for it. We need it. It speaks life to us. It's the grid through which we run everything else. Okay? So, we are growing. We're gaining in spiritual maturity. We need to be continually longing for that milk, which is the gospel. Uh, we have to keep our selfish flesh from obscuring that foundation of the truth of the gospel. And if we keep the gospel straight in our hearts and minds and continue to dig into it and turn it up, that milk, think about this now, it's kind of a silly reference, but if we keep turning that up and thinking through the gospel, that milk is going to turn into what? <laughs> some other solid dairy product, right? Butter or cheese, something like that, okay? So maybe, to help us to think through this better, maybe instead of calling it milk and meat and potatoes, maybe let's call it milk and cheese, okay? It's solid food. That's what the Word of God says. It says solid food. Uh, so at least that gets us back into the dairy product section of the uh, grocery store, okay? Verse 3. All that for verse 2. Verse 3. You are still of the flesh. Your thinking, your actions, he says, are as if you were an unbeliever. 
And the flesh, as opposed to the spiritual man, is the basic nature of man, not being controlled by the Spirit. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now, jealousy, it's interesting you use jealousy. Jealousy is when someone is taking what is yours. You're upset about something because, uh, with someone because they're taking what is yours. When we see the Old Testament, our God is a jealous God. What was he jealous over? And that was a righteous jealousy. His people Israel going after others. Israel was his bride. The church now is his bride, right? We are the people of God. So jealousy has the idea of somebody taking from us what we believe to be our own. And then strife is angry, bitter disagreement. Arguments with each other. Okay, do you think this was righteous jealousy or sinful jealousy here? Given the context of where we are now. This is probably sinful jealousy. We're behaving in a human way. And these things are fruits. Jealousy and strife, these are fruit. Thinking and acting like an unbeliever produces jealousy and strife. Which brings about, of course, division. Division. And how was that division manifested in the church? Here we go with verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul... And another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Remember being human of the flesh. They're arguing about their favorite pastor. And remember, they are in jealousy, striving against each other. So they're being possessive, as if they're saying things like this. My pastor is Paul. By the way, he's not there anymore, right? My pastor is Paul, so I'm more spiritual than you are. I was here from the beginning, and this church wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Paul. And it wouldn't be this way as it is today if Apollos tried to start it. He couldn't have done that like Paul did. I've been saved longer, and my pastor is an apostle. So my salvation testimony is way cooler than yours. And then the other person says, my pastor is Apollos. He's my pastor. Paul came to town and and, and he up and left us. Apollos was more faithful. He paid more attention to me. He paid longer attention to me. And he's a better speaker than Paul anyways. His messages are way more interesting. If Paul was still here, things wouldn't be going as well as they are now. These are the arguments. Okay, are they really fighting for Paul or Apollos? They're kind of fighting for... The ultimate argument, it's all about me. My way is best. My spirituality is best. I will get what I want. And I am willing to throw Paul or Apollos or anyone else under the bus in order to get it. Were Apollos or Paul bad pastors? Were they two different people? Did they have different gifts and abilities and different characteristics? that would or would not be particularly appealing to certain people? Of course, that's just how that works, right? But to say one of them is insufficient in your argument because you're being jealous and striving against one another, that's selfish. Now, in getting to the root of the problem, Paul could have said, who do you think you are, Corinthians? Really, who do you think you are to talk about us like that? He could have said that, but instead he... And included in with this writing, Apollos set the example. 
Instead of telling the Corinthians, who do they think they are? He says, who do you think we are? Verse 5 says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants. And the word there is the same word for a deacon. And the history of that word was, was nothing more than just being a table waiter. Which makes sense as it's applied in the book of Acts because they needed people to wait on tables to make sure the food was distributed fairly. It's a table waiter. Paul says, I'm just a servant. Apollos is just a servant through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. God assigned the leaders. He assigned their characteristics. He created them with their personalities and put them where they were for his purposes at those given times, at those given places, because he's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's in control. He's the one who's going to put all of the pieces in place perfectly. He says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Uh, by, the, by default, the Corinthians didn't have anything to do with the growth either. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We're nothing. In comparison, we're nothing. We say, we're nothing? Nothing at all? Doesn't the next part of this passage talk about rewards? Yeah, it does. Okay, wait now. It's two weeks from now. Don't get ahead of me. We're nothing, though? Think about it like this. This is an illustration I think is helpful. When you go out after church today, if the clouds are gone, which they won't be because it's winter in Michigan, but if they were gone and you looked up into the sky, what would you see? The sun. Now, don't look too long. It would hurt your eyes. But what wouldn't you see as well in the sky? The stars. Now, look out there again at nighttime. By the way, when we moved here and looked up into the sky in July, we were, and we live in town, we saw so many more stars than we've seen ever in Toledo, okay? <laughs> you look up into the sky at night, and you see all of the stars that we can see, right, that are visible to us in this part of the world and all that kind of stuff. Do those stars... Now, granted, the world turns, right? Let's be scientific. The world turns, and there's other stars on that side too, right? Do they just cease to function during the daytime? Why don't we see them? Because of the sun. When the sun's doing its job, when we're receiving it, it's all we can see. And we get the sun out of the way, and we stop looking at it, we, the light does not affect us, then we see all the stars. Does that make sense? Are the stars there? Yeah, but does it really matter during the daytime? Are we going to see them? No. Who are we? We're nothing. Compared to, compared to the sun, Jesus Christ, we're nothing. Who are we? God gives the growth. So it doesn't matter whether Paul or Apollos planted or watered. If he had been switched around, who cares? God is the one who caused the church to exist. And God is the one who causes the church to grow. First Baptist Church, God is the reason this church exists. God is the reason the church, this church still exists. And God is going to be the reason this church continues to exist and continues to grow. It's going to be God. Um, I can preach and I can teach. I can point you to Jesus Christ and his word and in his word uh, from up here behind this pulpit. And I desperately desire to do so. Desperately. And I want to do it with as much excellence as I can muster up by the grace of God. 
But I can't do anything on the other side of this pulpit right now. Beyond my ability. And the same is true for all of us. You know, one of the greatest fears we have in evangelism is how the other people will respond. That is nothing of your responsibility. You can't control that anyways. Can't control it. Okay? God is the one who does the work. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. Okay, we're on the same team. Paul and Apollos on the same team. All of us, we are on the same team. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. Okay, here come the rewards. And in the context of the Corinthian church, this would seem like, a, oh man, now we're going to get away into individualism again. Now we're going to get away into what's my stuff and where, where are my things. And, and Paul is, as I said in the next part of the chapter, we're going to get there in two weeks, is going to discuss rewards. But Paul does not refer to rewards yet. He doesn't say rewards in this verse. Notice that he simply calls anything we would receive wages. Wages according to labor. These are worker and servant terms. This isn't a party, okay? It's just your wages. There's nothing to see here. Just a regular deal. Uh, so the emphasis is not about the rewards that I will get. It's not that. Instead, this is about who the judge is and who the giver of rewards will be. Okay? That's who we're talking about here. Instead, this is about who the judge and the giver of rewards is in that we are all laborers and we all have the same boss. I am not your rewarder. I am not your boss. You are not my rewarder or my boss. And that would be true of any church. And that's what Paul is saying to the, to the Corinthian church in this passage. We are all on the same team with our different roles and functions that God has given us in the church, and we serve one master, and we serve him as one unit. One unit. God is the one who causes growth. He's the giver of rewards for our labor, our table waiting, our service. And this is an encouraging thing here, okay? We're given wages and rewards for our labor and not for, it says, the results. Notice that? If God's the giver of the increase, if God's the one who causes us to exist and causes us to continue and causes us to grow, then I am not responsible for that. Isn't that a relief? God wants us to be faithful and to rely on him and to trust in him, and he's going to be the one who brings about the increase. That part is not my responsibility, and that's going to come back up as we continue on later here. Verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. With two options there. Either we're workers with God, like we're on the same level. Or two, the other option, we are co-workers working for God. What do you think? Let's go with two. Option number two. Okay, we're not on level with God. We are co-workers. Paul, Apollos, they're fellow workers. You and I, were fellow workers working for God, our master. And then it says, you are God's field you are god's building okay you're god's you're god's building and field you're not mine it's it's in our vernacular right in our context and our culture say uh, oh that's john macarthur's church no it's not <laughs> it's not this church isn't mine it's god's uh, also this church isn't yours we can easily also say, well, that's my church. And I'm not ripping on you, okay? We know what that means. But do we know what it means all the time? <laughs> I 
we can get into the idea of that this belongs to me. But no, this church belongs to God. First Baptist Church belongs to God. We are his workers. We are working together, side by side, striving to do his will and to be pleasing to him. This isn't our church. We are the church, and we are his. So we've talked about milk and cheese. We've talked about the extent of our responsibility. We've talked about who this church belongs to. Uh, But let's revisit this theme of infancy, Uh, immaturity and maturity, if you will. Uh, And some of these other questions will come back into the picture as we go along here. So infancy and maturity. Here's the question. How do I know if I'm mature or not? How do I know if I'm mature or not? How would I gauge that? We want to look at it from two perspectives. The first one being the idea of elevating man's role. Elevating man's role and minimizing God's role. If that's our perspective, that'd be a sign of immaturity. Elevating man's role, minimizing God's role is a sign of immaturity. This is evidenced by jealousy and strife, this passage says. Okay, so selfishness, being possessive, uh, the consumeristic nature that we've talked about with the church at Corinth, being argumentative. This all results in division. Okay? And and listen, as we said before, there are Christians in their 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s who are immature. There there are. There just are. There could be Christians who have gone to church for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years who are immature. And remember, all of us have at least a shred left of immaturity because we're not like Jesus yet. We're not just like him. So it's there somewhere. And it can come out. God's word teaches us uh, that our maturity is not based on how long we've been around. Our maturity is based on how Christ-like we are. So you can be 80 years old, have a lot of earthly wisdom, been a member of a church for 60 plus years, and be a baby Christian. This is possible. Uh, In relation to rewards, thinking about this as we talked about rewards earlier, if I think that the results are my responsibility, if I think I have to change this and change that to get results, and those things are purely in preferences, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, then who gets the glory there? It's my trophy. It's my win. We're going to do this my way because I'm going to get my rewards. And we have to be real careful when we get into that ballgame. Now, in contrast, elevating instead of man's role, elevating God's role. And we should say acknowledging it, right? Can we elevate God? <laughs> He's far and lifted up, far above and beyond anything that we could ever elevate him to. But it'd be good for us to realize it. Realizing who God is and where he is, elevating God's role, acknowledging it, and minimizing man's role as opposed to a sign of immaturity, is a sign of maturity. Evidenced by, this maturity is evidenced by, in contrast to jealousy and strife, love, giving of myself sacrificially for the benefit of others. Selflessness, holding things with an open hand, willing to sacrifice preferences for the greater good of the ministry. Servanthood, 
which all results in unity. And just like immaturity, there are Christians of various ages who are mature, who are maturing. And there are Christians who have been going to church for different numbers of years who are mature and are maturing. So, and with some of this discussion, I am not going to get real specific on this. I'm going to speak about it principally. And it might be hard for us not to think of a specific example, because we've all been there. We've probably all done that. So we've probably all been there and done that. And for our church, our church has existed for over 130 years. There's been some good, and there's been some bad. Just like every other church under the sun that's been around for 130 plus years. Does that make sense? So we're going to be thinking things in our minds, potentially, as we go through this discussion. But let's, let's think about it principally. I'm going to speak of it principally. And then let's go after it and, 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 and grow from it and think about it, okay? Let's say that when you have a situation where a new generation is emerging in leadership, as they do every generation. A new generation is emerging in leadership in the church, and the older generation has this personal preference, and the younger gener- generation has that personal preference. And then the church gets all heated and divided. Who was wrong? Potentially both of them. Potentially both of them? At least one. There isn't division when both sides are doing well (laughs) of any kind of argument, right? At least one. And it could be either one. If you ever hear yourself saying, well, I really like it how we do that, and it better not change, or I really like it how we did that, and I'm angry that it did change. We need to think through and take time and, and, and look at the big picture of why the changes might have been beneficial to the whole, to the, to the whole church. And ask, is this a personal preference or is this a doctrinal issue? If it's not a doctrinal issue, then let's, it's a doctrinal issue. But if it's a personal preference, it's a personal preference. So please watch out for all of us, younger or older. Let's, let's watch out for the danger of turning personal preferences into doctrinal issues. And, we're not done yet. If you ever hear yourself saying, if we would just make these new changes, it would make everything better. Or especially, I don't care how people feel. They need to get over themselves and deal with the changes. Well, maybe you need to get over yourself. <laughs> this isn't any better, and it can be even more detrimental. We've got to think about, how are we trying to draw people or coax them into coming? Isn't that the Lord's work? We invite, but we don't, like, coax Let's be careful that we don't fall into the trap of turning our personal preferences into a model of church growth. Because that's not what church church growth is about. There's no need for a generational war. And I hesitate in even going there. Because is, is it just a generational thing? No. It tends to be that way. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I think sometimes it tends to be that way just because generations have trends. And preferences. And so we have that happening in the church, and it certainly has happened in the church at large. There's no denying it. Uh, So it serves as a purpose of illustration for us, but please know that it's not just about generational differences. And there's no need for it. Think about this. Are we a business or are we a church? Are we selling a product? Are we selling seats to a show? And there's a model of that in every generation. Are we selling seats to a show, or are we making disciples? Uh, Sadly, there are too many churches in the U.S. today that cannot even practice Titus 2, the older teaching the younger and both serving together. 
both generations, the older and the younger, because there's only one age group in their membership. And often because of personal preferences and consumeristic desires. Not always, but often. Sometimes there's churches with a mature older generation and an immature younger generation because of the methods that have been changed to appeal to the flesh. Sometimes there's churches with a mature younger generation and an immature older generation for the same reason, but the opposite way. The church may have had a history of being showier or relying on big productions to be a bigger sell in the old days or whatever you want to call it. And then maybe some changes have been made to make the church's practices more biblical. It can go either way. It can go either way. And this is not every church. I'm just saying it can happen. So let's be careful we don't look down on anyone now. And let's be careful we don't wallow in mire right now. Okay? I've got to say this. I am a firm believer that whether our music is new or old, or both, there's an idea, whether our Bibles are on paper or on our devices, whether we have colorful stage lighting or just turn on the lights so we can see, whether we have a coffee shop or donut holes or nothing at all, whether we have blue carpet or hot pink carpet or tile, whether we have glass doors, who wants to vote for hot pink carpet? Just kidding. Whether we have glass doors or wood doors, whether I wear a tuxedo or look like a lumberjack on Sunday morning, either way, and I'm being facetious, okay? Uh, Whether our porridge is too hot or too cold or just right. When people see that we love Jesus Christ, that we love each other, that we love our neighbors, that we're humble, sincere, that we're thankful for our salvation in Christ, that we care about all that more than we do of our own personal preferences, and when we're faithful to proclaim the gospel and work together to make disciples, even willing to hear when we need to repent and change, allowing iron to sharpen iron amongst ourselves, God will be glorified. And this church will grow exactly the way he wants it to grow, which may or may not be the way we feel like it. But it'll happen the way he wants it to, both spiritually and potentially numerically. That part is in his hands. It's in his hands. We better not try to claw it back out by wooing people or by appealing to their flesh. Uh, the world that would win every time if we tried to do it that way anyway. When I was in college, I worked at a Christian bookstore. And I'd set the music out. I like music, so I'd go and I'd set the, the CDs. That gives you a little bit of a frame, okay? It was CDs, and we were putting those all out there. And um, there'd be these stickers on the front of the CDs. It'd say, sounds like Coldplay. Or sounds like pick your, pick your band, Okay or pick your hip-hop artist or R&B artist or whatever in the secular uh, music industry. And it would say that. Why? And, and the truth is, once it establishes that, I'd listen to them occasionally and see what it was like. It was never as good. Artistically, musically speaking, it wasn't as good as them. If we try to mimic the world and try to be like the world and tell everybody else, hey, we do that cool stuff too. No. We're not going to do it like that. We're just copycatting. <laughs> and, and if we copycat, 
It's going to look fake, phony, and be inferior. Let's go there. Right? I mean, that's not how to do it. That's not how to do it. Now, if we're just genuine and we do what we do because we love Jesus, that's genuine. That's something that can be latched onto, but only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. Before you knew Jesus, did you want to sit in an auditorium and listen to a guy talk to you for 45 minutes straight? What in the world are you doing, right? God is gracious to us and wakes us up and gives us life and changes us. He is the giver of grace. Let's get into his program and do it his way. And and all that list of stuff I gave to you, nothing in that was good or bad. It was just different. It was just different. Let's just be who we are and be known better as lovers of Jesus than stylish one way or the other. Who cares about the style? Let's love Jesus. And I think if we do that, it's going to be good. If we try to resonate with people and try to gain their approval, we will see some kind of growth. We will see some kind of growth, but it'll be the kind that we can cause. And we'll also see decline because at the same time, uh, we'll be ostracizing our own people. Or we can resonate with God and love people. And then we'll see the kind of growth that only he can cause. And that's the kind of growth we want to see around here. This is the outworking of the difference between spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity in the life of the church. We are not of Paul. We are not of Apollos. This church is not my church. This church is not your church. We are servants. We are the church. We are God's field and we are God's building. So let's be comfortable with who we are because who God has made us to be is better than anything that we could ever conjure up or muster up or accomplish. Let's love Jesus Christ, loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's love one another and build each other up. Let's be humble. Let's be sincere. Let's be patient. Let's love our neighbors and show them Christ. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing, by hungering and yearning for the milk of the word of God, for the gospel message and and the solid food that comes through it. And let's eagerly watch. Eagerly watch and see what God does with us, his servants. First Baptist, Mount Pleasant. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. God, in my own life, growing up in the church, but not being converted, not being saved, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I wanted to run off and deny you, act like you didn't exist so that I could be my own God. And you intervened. And I was confronted with the gospel by a person who was bold enough to share with me even though he knew I didn't want him to. And you gave me a heart of flesh. You gave me new birth. You gave me life. And you have done that with every person in this room who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your loving grace that you have given to us. And God, I pray for anybody here who's not yet done that, who's not yet understood the truth of the gospel, is not yet a believer. God, work in their heart today to open their eyes and to give them a new heart and to make them your son or your daughter. That they would believe by faith and follow hard after you. God, be with us as a church. 
I pray that the greatest delight to our eyes would be the beauty of Jesus Christ. That the greatest accomplishment that we could muster up would be our love and devotion towards him. That we would give ourselves to you. And that we would trust you with any results that would come. And God, we thank you that you've promised to us that the work that you began, that you started in us, you will be faithful to complete it. So we will be like Jesus Christ. And we'll be able to enjoy you forever. Thank you for the life that you give to us. And may we, under the sun here, live it in a way that pleases you individually and as a body, as a group of believers that you've called us to be. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.